Sometimes in life, you don't know it, but you're actually somebody's homecoming. What does that mean? Sometimes when someone has wrecked their life so bad, you just might be the only person that can look beyond all of the mistakes and be their homecoming or home welcoming. Because they have no home. A, a lot of people, you, you have a physical home, but you felt for a majority of your life that you haven't really had a home. As in, people that love you no matter what. It's amazing how God is our eternal homecoming. You know, because life can be so hard, and that, that applies to everyone in the room. Maybe not right now in your current situation, but you have had or will have some point in your life where you just need a place to return home. You know, some people can't have kids. And adopted children are their homecoming. Because there's no difference to them. They're their children. Some of you have been adopted and your adoptive parents were your homecoming. And, and I got to say that all that pain and all that struggle and all that hurt that you felt and not being able to have kids and that they felt and not having anyone who wanted them, there's this great culmination, this great marriage of we get a child and they think I get a daddy, I get a mommy. And this applies more than just to those people to the people that have been addicted to drugs or the people like me that went to jail and you were just a drunk because you couldn't control yourself. You felt so ashamed and, and you found that in Christ there is a homecoming and there's a place to be sober and to be made new. Today I want to talk about a very meaningful subject to me and that is the topic of judgment and how it relates to God's grace. Because we live in a very cruel, 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 cruel culture. We live in a cruel world. A, a world of a lot of misplaced and inaccurate judgment based on assumptions. And we do it just the same as non believers. Verse I want to start with, which is a verse I memorized, and I would encourage you to memorize this verse is Hebrews 12, 15. And it kind of sets the stage for all that I want to discuss today. And it says this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God or falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That's your job. If you understand the grace that Jesus has given you, it's your job to not judge people based on appearances and what you think they've done and how horrible they are because you're just as bad. 
Jesus doesn't just take the people that somewhat have their lives together. He takes the people that were murderers like Paul, like Moses. He takes the worst, the scum of the earth. There's two passages I want to highlight, and the first one is John uh, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And I want to stop there, and I'm going to break this down so that we can dig a little deeper to find out what, what significance is there to each verse of Scripture. The Mount of Olives, Jesus goes there. A lot of scholars believe that this was Jesus' tradition to go be alone with his Father somewhere between like 3 and 6 a.m. So all of you who have to get up at 4 for work, Jesus had it worse. And you can work and move and stay awake. Have you ever tried to wake up early and pray and stay awake? Now that's tough. But he would get up very early and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And my first point is this, for you as the grace givers that you can give the grace of God, you need to understand this. Anointing is intrinsically tied to aloneness with God. And you think, well, the pastor is the one that's supposed to be anointed. Yeah, to preach the message and to try to guide people and shepherd people. But you need the oil of the Holy Spirit on your head as well so that you can actually give something. Peter talks about being prepared at all times to give an answer to the hope that lies within us. We should be full of the oil of joy like Pastor talked about last week. Jesus said that I have... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Just to revisit that for a moment. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. captives sorry, In the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of God's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. I think that we get confused about the true nature of of the one we follow. I think that we don't truly understand Jesus and so we don't live like him. We're so busy in the hustle bustle of life that we're not offering grace to anyone. When we look at this text, we see that there's such symbolism in the Mount of Olives because it was the place where they would take the olive olives and crush them initially and then they would take it to take the olives down to Gethsemane, which was a lower part below the Mount of Olives, where they had the final draining and crushing of the olives. And they would set the olives between two mammoth slabs, rocks that were flat, and they would crush them down and let them sit for days or weeks even, and they'd have a pit below where all the oil, the olive oil, would drain out. And there's such power in what we read in Scripture because Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood on our behalf. All that he had as he was preparing to give his spirit on the cross to his Father, all that was there, all that oil of joy, all of that oil of restoration and regeneration, all of that was being drained out. He was being crushed for our sins. He did that for you. As we get further into the text, I think this is so powerful. It says early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Second point is this. Anointing is worthless or wasted without assembly. And you can be with God alone and you can hear from God, but you're going to become the dead sea. Because God wants to speak to you and give you newness every day like he gave manna to the Israelites in the desert. That's an example for us to watch. His mercies are new every day, but we need to go and be alone with God every day. 
We need a fresh anointing every single day of the oil of the Holy Spirit so that we know how to administer the grace of Jesus to people. Because when you're flustered, you miss the person that needs your grace. You miss the person who has a broken life or a broken heart. Going on in the text, it says that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Some of you are like the Pharisees. Because... Because right now, okay, so I want to I wanna address something here. Just this a little footnote in my message. So here we go. We're going on a, on a journey together. Some of you are grading my message on a scale from 1 to 10. Do you know that Paul said you should not say, I like Apollos or I like Paul or I like Timothy better. You should just listen to what God is saying. I am a minister of God's gospel. I'm not the shepherd of this flock, but I am preaching today. So knock the scale out. Because some of you are thinking, I give him a seven. That message sucked. He didn't stay on point. He went on too many rabbit trails about stupid stuff. Well, maybe God wanted you to learn for that rabbit trail. Huh? My point is, you're the critics. And even if it wasn't me, if it was Pastor Gary preaching, you would be in here nitpicking every little thing about, well, that doesn't line up with his life. I, I heard him say something bad a week ago, or he's, he's just a horrible person, and you need to stop. You are the Pharisee. You're always looking for the thing that's wrong with somebody else so you can point the finger at them, and you don't understand you're totally making it so that they miss the grace of God. And that's why when Jesus came into this situation, he just thought, you guys are fools. Absolute fools. We look into this, we see that Jesus wanted to actually call them out. Going on in verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Question for you. Did Jesus ask her if she really committed adultery? Why not? It was irrelevant. You know, it's irrelevant. Your sin is irrelevant when you've been forgiven by Jesus. When you've been saved and you've been made new, your sin is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that we should go on sinning, that grace may abound. Paul said, by no means. But your sin is irrelevant. And so if your sin is irrelevant, so is the sin of others. We are missing it. People need the grace of God. And that's why the church is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Because people feel judged. People feel hurt. They feel they could never, ever confess their deepest, darkest sin. None of you would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't confess it to you. That's how we live because we don't really live like Jesus. We're so far off the mark. 
And since we're so far off the mark, we should get this concept in our minds. Forgiveness is not contingent upon repentance. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Hold on, hold on. No, hold on. So, so is not condemning someone an equal to forgiveness? Is it? If you choose not to forgive someone, is that not an equal to forgiveness? I forgive you. Because if you don't forgive someone, you're going to constantly be condemning them in your mind. Thinking, well, they're that dirty, rotten sinner. They hurt me so bad. We need to learn to let go. It's okay. It is okay because you know what? God let go of all of the dirtiness and the filth in your life. All of the years you wasted partying and living like hell. All of the years you wasted yelling at your wife yelling at your husband, treating your kids like garbage, not being able to even empathize with them, and it takes them going away and almost totally destroying their life for you to get a grip. Okay, I, we just need to love them for who they are. Stop setting such a high standard. No one can live up to it. What we, I'm telling you this emphatically, this is from God. Because I've thought about this for years. What we hate most about God's grace is that we cannot control it. Why should they be forgiven? Why should they be set free? They hurt me so bad. Because God wants them to be set free and to be saved and to be with them in heaven. Just like he wants you. So what makes you better than them? Judge not lest ye be judged. For the measure that you judge someone else, you too will be judged. You need to stop. When you're going to criticize someone else, you need to stop and think, well, who's criticizing me? Because what goes around comes around. Do you understand? We've talked about reaping and sowing so much. Pastor Gary's preached about the different stages and steps of reaping and sowing. And you always reap what you sow. So every time you want to cuss someone out, every time you want to be judgmental, you need to realize that God's going to let that come back your way. It might not come right now. It might come 10 years from now. You need to pour the love of God on people because Jesus came and he thought to himself. Now, just stop a minute because I thought, what's, what's the deeper meaning and what does Jesus really feel in his heart in this situation? He's walking into this mob. He's in the temple and the mob comes and he steps forward and there's this woman who's supposedly been caught in adultery. Nobody's confirmed it. But they have more than two witnesses. So according to the Old Testament, then she should be stoned. And the, the law was that only a betrothed virgin would be stoned. But any other person that had committed adultery within marriage that wasn't a virgin would be killed by strangulation. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to pick every little part of the Old Testament. But the problem with picking the Old Testament with Jesus is he is the Old Testament. Testament, you stupid morons. He is the law. He is the word. He's the embodiment of perfection, truth, the law, the standard. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it because he was perfect. And Jesus came forward just like you should come forward. And what he thought was this. I was thinking about this long and hard. He thought, okay, hold on. I see the hate in their eyes. I see the intensity in how badly they desire to stone her. And I see how bad they want to trap me and stone me. And you know what? I'm Jesus, and so I actually know what my destiny is at this point in life. 
I'm going to be killed. And so why the heck would I let her be killed when I'm supposed to be killed on her behalf? It's only a matter of time. Go. Sin no more. Whether she truly understood it or not, he gave her the opportunity to receive the grace and then realize it in her own life and then at some point either get saved before he died or look upon that cross and say, that man set me free and he died for me. And he died for you. We need to emphasize this with our children at the youngest age. We need to tell them God loves you no matter what. Because you think setting all these rules and stipulations of you got to live this way and you can't turn out that way and you can't. Yeah, we should have guidelines. Don't just let them go smoke pot when they're nine or at all. But let's get real. I am a living testimony of the fact that when somebody tells me something in anger, you better not do that or don't do that, you'll screw up your life. You know what I thought when I was young and cocky? Still am sometimes. A, a confession of a cocky-aholic. <laughs> Pride gets the best of me and I think, you're not telling me what to do. Just because you told me not to go get drunk, I'm going to get so hammered. I'm going to bong 10 beers in one bong. I'm going to set a new record. And then guess what? I'm going to pass out later in my garage. Huh? And feel like an idiot. But you need to understand that kids over everything want to be loved. They don't want rules. They don't want laws. They just want to be loved. They want to have a home to go to. They want to know when they go off and they screw up horribly that they can come home and find open arms like the, the, the father of the prodigal son. You know what I thought was crazy is I was reading about the prodigal son. And an author wrote this. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have a quote here in front of me, but he said this, and I thought it was really powerful. Sometimes you think all of those stupid things I did, all of the bad decisions and the, the having sex before marriage and getting drunk and doing drugs and hurting all these people and wasting all my money on all those stupid things, and I wasted so many years. What he said was, if the prodigal was an ep economically sound person, he would have never returned to the father. If he wasn't a spendthrift in every way, if you didn't go and sow your wild oats, you probably would have never come back to be redeemed. If you didn't go and mess up your life, you would have never known your need for Christ. If you didn't have that situation that was so hard and heartbreaking, you would have never had to lean on him. I was listening to a message by one of my favorite preachers. It actually made me sad. Erwin um, McManus is a pastor of a church called Mosaic in Los Angeles. And he's a very creative pastor and a very good preacher, and I think he really has a heart for God. And I pulled up because I had heard some bad news about him and his future, and I pulled up his most recent message. I thought it was like his last message, like he's going to die. I, he's still preaching, which is powerful to me. But they told him he had malignant five cancer out of nowhere. Went to the doctor and they said, you have malignant five cancer and, I mean, this is like the worst. And he's preaching a message called battle ready. And I'm thinking, you're filled with cancer ready to die and you're preaching about being battle ready. And this is what he said, and hold on to this nugget of truth because I wrote it down because I want to I remember this all of my life. The greatest um, reward for winning a battle Okay, because we always think it's like, oh, I got through that good. Now I can coast for a while. He said this, the greatest reward for winning a great battle is that God would give you 
a tougher battle. And I just thought, well, that's not normal Christian thinking. We want to go on autopilot. And he's sitting there going, you know, it's crazy because I thought I was going to, he was telling this story, he got in a car accident. They, they were taking his wife's car back from the shop or something. And this guy that was slightly drunk on New Year's Eve, I think he said it was, blew through a stop sign, totaled their car out. And he was sitting there going, it's so great. He goes, and I thought I was going to die of cancer. Because his life flashed before his eyes. And you need to realize that your life is gone in a moment. What will be your last testimony? Your last word? What will be your last moment? What will you leave people with? How will they live their lives based on what you said and what you did in those last moments? Make it mean something. You don't know how much longer you have to live. You have to think about that. Raise your hand if God has showered you with grace. Raise your hand high. Now, take that hand. Make a chicken wing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> take that hand. Now, after the service, whether it's here or at home or somewhere else, and you put it on someone's shoulder and you say, I really love you. And you say, God really loves you. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus would put his hand on you and he would say, you're my son. And if you're, if, you're, if you're a father in this room, you know that there's no point for most of you. Maybe some of you would cut ties, but you know there's some point, there's no point that you would ever say, you're no longer my son. You blew it. There's no way. They're your child. And that's how God feels towards you, times a thousand, because his love is perfect. I want to jump forward to John 9, two passages I said I wanted to talk about, and briefly I want to look at this because I think it's very powerful. Starting in verse 1, as he went along, it says Jesus was in the temple, as a little context for you, and he is leaving the temple because the Pharisees began to pick up stones. Okay, isn't this ironic? He just forgave the woman and said, you have no right to stone her. And guess what they do? We're going to stone you, sucker. You ever had that? People are looking to trap you and destroy you around every corner because, I don't know, they don't understand the power of the grace of God and how much they've been forgiven. Said that he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. Stop a minute. I don't know of anyone in this room that has actually been physically blind. But I know a lot of people that have been spiritually blind. And I know a lot of you are right now spiritually blind. Because you don't know the saving grace of Jesus. And John 9, 39 says this. I don't have this on the screen because I looked this up this morning as I was studying. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into the world. Now we're thinking, well, he said in John 8, 15, you Pharisees judge in the flesh, but I judge no one. And I'm like, okay, so Jesus judges no one. Good, that feels good. And then he says, I come into this world for judgment. I'm like, well, wait a minute. This is so confusing. You ever get confused by scripture? You're like, 
Uh, I'm going to close the Bible now and go mow the lawn because this is a little above me. So, Paul, you're just, you need to settle down. Got to remember, you're the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm just a Caucasian man who grew up lo loving Michael Jordan, and I don't know much about this. So, it is so confusing at times, but I want to explain this. What he's saying is this. He says, for judgment I have come to the world so that those who do not see may see. Hold on a minute now. What kind of judgment is Jesus bringing? This kind of judgment we should bring. And that those who see may become blind. Now, okay, now I'm starting to get it because guess what? What's going to happen is later in the story, I'll paraphrase because I'm running out of time. The Pharisees are going to come and they're not going to believe that, that Jesus of Nazareth healed this man because they wanted him dead. He couldn't possibly be from God. Satan loves to attack the grace of God. He loves to say, oh, that, that, that didn't really happen. To make you the skeptic and the doubter for somebody's healing. Jesus does heal. He really does. And this is what he does. What does this mean? It means this. It means that every person that wants to be stubborn and cold-hearted and skeptical all your life, Jesus is going to eventually just say, I'm giving you over to your blindness or your reprobate thinking. You can have it. If you want to be so cold that you can't possibly understand who Jesus is, then you'll never know him. God will give you to that. That's his judgment. Some of you need to stop right now and think, is that me? Am I so cold and so black inside and so hurt? You know, Jesus can heal all of those scars from the past. He can take all of those hurt moments in, in your childhood. He can take all of those hurt moments in your marriage. He can take all of those hurt moments when your kids betray you or they turn away from your advice. If you train them up in the way they should go, they will turn back around. They'll come home, baby. They will come home. That baby of yours will come home. I used to have such discord with my parents. And my dad's not a, he's not a, um, he's not the guy, kind of guy where growing up you're like, yeah, I can take him. It's kind of like when boyfriends come to the house, they tremble. Because it's not that he's mean by nature, he just kind of has the demeanor like it's business. And if you don't know him, you could think he's just a tough Man, which he is a tough man, but inside, because I know him, he's a very tender-hearted man who does cry and does care about his family. The, the crazy thing is that you find that over time, even tough people can break down because he's become more and more mellow. I used to fight with my dad so bad. I used to cuss at him. I used to be on the job working with my brothers and my dad, and they'd tell me something to do, and I'd screw it up, and then they'd say, well, you know how to do it. Why'd you do it wrong? And then I'd just start cussing, and they'd get mad and yell back, and then I'd throw something, and then I'd walk away for like five minutes, and people were like, man, this family's messed up. I was so immature, I couldn't take it. I just, just, oh, I was just always mad, and I'd get in these fights all the time, and I'd say such hurtful things, and I hurt my parents, and they hurt me because I hurt them, because hurt people hurt people, and I can tell you right now that because God has changed my life, there's nothing but love in our hearts. 
There's no more discord. There's no more fighting. When I go home, I just want to give my mom a hug. I just want to tell my dad I care about him. I think that there's only so much time left in this life. I want to love my parents. I want to love my in-laws. I want to love my family. I want to love the people of this church. That's what God created us for. And if this church can unite around some of Jesus' teachings and some of Jesus' life, oh man, it could shake the world. If churches in this, in this country could unite around Jesus' example, wow. You know what I think happens? I wrote this because I think it's so true. We use scripture to control God. Oh, man, now, well, what do you mean? Come on now. The Bible every day. I read the Bible every day. Well, that's good for you, but you're misusing it. We use scripture to control God. I want to give you a little bit of an insight because this is what I do. When I start nitpicking verses, I start thinking, well, I could apply that to her life and his life. And you start thinking, well, that I should just, I'm going to text them this verse and I hope they get, the, get a clue about how bad, right? We use it like, like left hooks, you know? It's like we got our brand new Matthews bow out shooting scripture their way, baby. You know, just let it fly. Because I know some of you can shoot in a group like this, right? Some of you can pinpoint, you can take a verse and you can just hammer it home. And you know, how good does that work in your life when you're struggling? Someone's like, just going to hammer it home, yeah. Come back for some more, yeah. Does that work ever? Hey, babe, you know, you think you're being subtle. Hey, babe, so, you know, I read this verse this morning. It talks about self-discipline. Um, here's the passage. I'm going to go outside for a while. We think we can just interject these things when in reality, you know, I, I heard this pastor talking about marriage, and he it was so powerful to me because this is how it works for me. It doesn't work like assuming things about me or trying to always rebuke and correct me. That doesn't work. I just get just like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. I can't take this. I feel like you're mad at me. I feel like, and that's how it's been in life. It's like, don't, don't be mad at me. Don't say the negative. Just say something positive and then I'll listen. Please encourage me. I need encouragement. I'm depressed. Have you ever been depressed? And you just need a little word of, wow, that was amazing. Not cheesy, like the way you straighten those chairs, Dirk, is amazing. You have a gift. That's just a small example, but it's true. He's anal retentive. It's like, um, that one's off. If you go to his house, you'll see lines in the basement that are so perfect. It's like you think people are freaks about mowing their lawn. He's down there. Straight. My point is we have, to, we have to be willing to compliment people. We have to be willing to say, I really love you and I appreciate how you've been a great father to me. Do what Jesus did. You know, I used to think, well, I'm mad at my parents or I'm mad at my friends or I'm mad at them and I should be able to, at some point I got to set them straight on that. And the more I live, the more I think that isn't going to work because they're just like me. It's like bull in a china shop. You ever try to, yeah, bro, you shouldn't do that. You know what most responses would be on our staff? Initial responses. First three minutes, I'm going to punch him so hard next time I see him. 
because we're stubborn. We're like, who are you to tell me? And then we eventually settle down like, thanks. That's a good, yep, fist bump. You know you're the same way. This, this man is, is a lot like some of you. You know, he's blind from birth. And this is a spiritual illustration. It's not just a physical one. Just stay with me for like, like six more minutes. It's a spiritual illustration. The book of Psalms book of Psalms talks about, and David says, I was sinful from birth. You have been blind since birth. And without the power of God's saving grace and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be wandering around blind. And you can think that that only applies to unsaved people. Once saved, always saved. In a practical sense, you need to get rejuvenated every day. In a positional sense, yeah, it's done. It's finished because what Jesus did on the cross, it saves you. You are saved by grace. But in a practical sense, you got to stop for a minute and think, pour that oil out, God. you got to go to that Mount of Olives and you got to say, if I am going to treat the blind man next to me with any sense of dignity and, and of love and of grace, then I need to understand that that's how God treated me. Because you can't give out what you haven't been given. Do you get that? I was thinking about this idea that when you work out, you are burning a thing called glycogen. Okay, there's, there's two elements, glycogen and ATP, ATP sorry. And I, I don't want to break that down because I'm not a doctor or scientist, and I'll, I'll mispronounce it. But glycogen is in your muscles. It's stored daily. And you have a choice. You either work the glycogen out and you build muscle, which burns fat, or you let the glycogen sit which turns into fat, and your muscles sit under a wealth of fat. And you have to think about how this compares to what Jesus did spiritually in going early in the morning to the Mount of Olives to work out everything. Now, he was, he was sinless, but we need to go and work out everything that is bad for us. We need to burn that glycogen. We need to get filled with oil, with new glycogen. Your body needs to regenerate or you're going to get out of shape. Everything about the human body and, and our physical needs relates to what God has done spiritually for us. When we work out, we deprive our bodies of oxygen so that our lungs can start working to be more efficient so that we can run longer, farther, be stronger. People that continually exercise their whole lives, they live 10 to 20 years longer. And you don't understand that the spiritual life has the same effect. See to it that no one misses the grace of God because the bitter root will be in you. Give out the grace. Work the grace out of you. Don't let it come in and say, oh, that feels good, and just let it sit there because it's going to turn to fat. What was good once is no longer good. It's the manna turning rotten inside of you. You are not the judge. This is what I say, finally. You are not the judge. You're not the judge of the woman caught in adultery because Jesus said any man who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. All of us even if it's not in a, in a sexual way, have committed adultery. Because we're married to Jesus. We're the bride of Christ. We are the whore. Jesus talks about in the book of Hosea, we are the whores. We should not be judging because we are all adulterers. We only become made 
new when we're anointed with God's power, with God's grace. In the end, I have to jump to this. The context is they just keep asking this blind man, how did you get your sight? And he says, the man named Jesus gave me my sight. And he, we don't have any indication that he actually got saved. He just, he just believed because Jesus spat on the ground, and, and this spitting was actually symbolic of healing in their day. So the man's blind. He hears this spitting, and Jesus makes this mud, and the man's actually starting to think, I believe I'm going to get healed because the man is spitting. He's going to do something to me. And he takes the mud, and he wipes it on his eyes, and he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he washes, and he comes back and says, I can see. And no one would believe he had a sight. This is what happens. No one believes you're the same person when Jesus gets a hold of you. Oh, man, you ever had that? Is that the same? Is that? They even said it about Jesus. Isn't that Joseph's son? Why is he reading the scroll in the temple? That's what they should say about you. Is that the same Andrew Wicks? Is that the same Casey Van Harn? Is that the same you fill in the blank? In the end, it says this. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. You ever hear that kind of stuff? They put, the, they put the God guilt trip on you. God is watching, young boy. Now tell the truth. Okay, so assume I don't tell the truth. That does a lot of good for me to understand the grace of God. Because I think that 1 Corinthians says that you should hope for the best and assume the best in the people that you know or that you love, right? And so he's sitting here and they say, go give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. We just know it. He's terrible. And the man replied, this is the clincher of it all. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. Can you just see like a smirk on his face? I don't know. But the thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. It doesn't need to always make sense. People want to be so logical and break it down. No, God healed me. Well, doctors say that it's, it's impossible to be healed from cancer. Well, God did it. I prayed and he healed me. That doesn't mean everyone's healed. But God does heal if you believe. He can heal you. God is so amazing. We must, we must, what we need to do is deprive ourselves of all of the gossip and we need to deprive ourselves because deprivation fortifies salvation. And to fortify is to build up a defense against something. And so when we deprive ourselves of sugar, we're less likely to get cancer. Well, we deprive ourselves of gossip and slander and bitterness and rage and brawling and anger. And we are more likely to administer the grace of God because it's what we're filled up with. You only have so much space in your body and your mind to fit all of these feelings and these thoughts. And God's saying, fill your mind with grace and love and peace. God, we pray this morning. We close our eyes and we, God, we beg you for a, an eternal perspective, God. And a perspective that, oh man, it says no matter how far gone someone is, I too am a horrible sinner. Jesus could empathize with the adulterous woman, not because he was an adulterer, but because he knew that he was going to die from the very hands of the men that wanted to kill her. And when you know that Satan is trying to kill you and trying to kill everyone else that is trying to seek God, or maybe not even seeking God right now, 
You need to fight to set them free from Satan's grip. You need to say, God, I want the strength to be a warrior of grace and a warrior of love and forgiveness. We need to forgive people and let go. We need to love our enemies. We need to be what Christ was on the earth. We need to live by his example. God, please, God, pour yourself out on us and bring healing today. Help us forgive those that have hurt us. I say this right now. There's two things. Is there anybody in here that says, what's hindering my spiritual life is that I have hurt and unforgiveness in my heart towards someone else or maybe multiple people and you say right now with no one looking around you raise your hand to God and say take it from me I don't want to hold this anymore I don't want this bitterness I want to be set free I want to set them free I want to see them know Jesus I want to see them thrive in this life you set them free right now God please work through these people that raise their hands secondly you first people can put your hands down secondly is there anyone that says, I don't have this grace and I don't really know Jesus' love and I don't know that if I died today that I would be in eternity with Jesus. I might be in hell with Satan because they are two very real places. And you say, I want to know Jesus. I want his forgiveness and his love on my life. Is there anybody in here that you're just willing, nobody's looking around, it's total privacy. You just say, I'm going to raise my hand to God and say, I need to know Jesus this morning. Yes. I see your hand. You can put it down. And we're not going to call you up front. We're not going to do anything like that. We just want you to acknowledge it to God. And if you're willing to talk to somebody afterward, that'd be great. One person opened the door for you. This is how it always works. I remember when I got saved, I had my hand clenched so tight to my side. I thought, I've gone to church my whole life, but I did not know Jesus. And that might be you. Is there anybody else? This, this person left the door open for you. You say, I need to raise my hand. I need to know Jesus today. I want to be saved. I want to know that I'm going to be in eternity with God when I die. Anybody else? God, I pray your blessing person today and pray your overwhelming grace and I pray that we would be able to administer your grace in such a powerful way this week and love put things aside do not operate in anger to cherish our relationship with you God and to walk with your anointing we thank you for what you've done for us right mm -hmm. yeah Jesus we love you we pray in your powerful name amen